0: But yeah, if this is your first time, uh, I want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Tyler Cash. I uh, have the honor and privilege to serve as one of CCF's pastors. Uh, My family and I have been on vacation. Uh, We've been gone for the past two Sundays. Uh, We had a great time. It was a great time of rest, uh, much needed rest uh, for us. And uh, even just before we get started, I want to take a moment to publicly thank uh, Pastor Gabe and Pastor Brandon, uh, thank you guys. Uh, thankful and grateful that uh, they allowed me to take some time off. Um, but more importantly, I am extremely thankful and grateful that uh, we have faithful and godly men to help lead this church. Uh, pastoral ministry is not a solo sport. Uh, this is not something that is or should be uh, taken lightly, and it shouldn't ever be done alone. The Bible models a plurality of pastors our elders that lead a church to help to shepherd God's people. And uh, I am honored to serve uh, with Pastor Brandon and Pastor Gabe. Uh, Pastor Gabe is actually not here today. Uh, He has a member of his family uh, who uh, actually... Uh, COVID caught up with them, uh, So uh, there's a few of them that are okay, and then one of them, uh, two of them now have it. But be praying for him as you uh, think of it. Um, I'm glad to be back. I, I missed you all. Um, some of you are like, I haven't even met you, so you can't miss me. Um, but for our church family, for our members, I uh, really miss you. Um, there's something special that happens when we're together. There's something special that happens in the gathering of God's people. Uh, there's something special that happens when we sing corporately. That's one of the things that I, I really missed uh, it was just the corporate singing, hearing my brothers and sisters, those that I know that are, are struggling with different things and uh, that are uh, feeling certain ways about certain areas, and they, they, they're able to sing the songs that, that the Lord has placed for us to sing something vertical that happens when we sing songs together, and there's also something horizontal, right? We encourage one another, and uh, I indeed was encouraged this morning, so thank you. Uh, We're in chapter three of our study in Amos. If you have your Bible, uh, grab it, turn to Amos chapter three. It's in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid of it. Ask somebody beside you for some help. Check your table of contents. But we're going to be in chapter 3, verse 12 today. And in chapter 3, uh, the theme of judgment is thick. It's thick. It's hard. It's tough. And in my absence, Pastor Brandon preached a phenomenal sermon on Amos 3, 1 through 8. We saw that judgment was deserved. Judgment is deserved on Israel. Uh, last week, Pastor Gabe focused on verses nine through eleven, where we saw that judgment was declared, it was described, and declared. And today, we're going to look at verse twelve and see the judgment of Israel described. Now, I know if you get the newsletter, uh, originally it said that it was going to be uh, through twelve through fifteen, but. Um, after my studies this week and after just uh, prayer, I really want to just hone in on just verse 12. We'll look at 13 through 15 next week. Um, but I, I really feel like uh, the Lord just he kept putting the brakes on me as I continued to uh, try to uh, move past this text. So uh, let's read this text. I will read it for us. Uh, read it with you. I'm reading from the ESV. If you don't have an ESV Bible, we have some in the back. Grab one. Uh, Raise your hand, one of our ushers will get you one, but uh, grab one on your way out. We want to have those for you. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 12, and then we will pray, and then we will dig into God's word this morning. Verse 12 says this, Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and even giving us your word. We thank you, Father, that Uh, You've given us this opportunity to study. You've given us a sound mind to understand. You've given us the opportunity to, to sit in this space, in this moment, that will never be duplicated. And to hear what your word has to say for us. So Father, would you help me to communicate clearly, Spirit, move through the words, through your word, in a powerful way that transforms us, that helps everyone in here to leave different than they walked in. And Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. And God's people said, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, and it strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Picture that for a moment. This was from a sermon titled Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God that was written and preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1741, this sermon and others like it contributed to the mass revival known as the Great Awakening of the 18th century by God's grace. The Great Awakening had massive effects on the world during its time. Historians record over 350 new churches that were established, gospel-preaching churches there were over 50,000 people who were converted during the great awakening Uh, in addition a mass amount of missionaries were called and sent to other countries to share the gospel of Jesus Christ the societal culture was also affected and many Christians became zealous for God and his word and They they wanted to know more about God's Word. They studied God's Word, so they then proclaimed God's Word. Many in the public square were emboldened and unapologetically speaking the truth in their public spaces, using every opportunity that they had to exhort others to repent from their sin and to turn to the one true God the God of the Bible. The Great Awakening emphasized the holiness of God and the wrath and the judgment to come for all who were unconverted. It was a call for genuine repentance and true life-changing conversion, not just lip talk. Roughly 100 years leading to the Great Awakening, American Christianity had taken a nose dive down a steep cliff of worldliness. This is before the Great Awakening. This decline was primarily contributed to an act called the Halfway Covenant." You can look it up, write it down, look it up later. The halfway covenant that many of churches adopted in 1660. And the halfway covenant was created as an effort to add numbers to the church during its day. Uh, See, many first-generation colonists were dying, and the second-generation colonists weren't being converted. They they, they weren't uh, acknowledging their need for a Savior. There was no true repentance. And so they weren't joining the church because then you had to believe then join. They they took pride in understanding that those in their midst in the church, the members of the body, were true converts indeed. But that had slowed down. So the halfway covenant was created as an effort to add numbers to the church in its day. See, it was introduced, and it would allow unconverted people... To be baptized and to become members of the church. Uh, unconverted or not, like, hey, you know, spontaneous baptism, come on up, anybody. Uh, do what you do. You said a prayer, you're good, let's, let's roll with it. But the hope was that these people, and this is recorded by many of those that were proponents, lobbyists for this halfway covenant. Uh, they would hope that those that were brought into the church on this false means of regeneration and conversion, that they would then be able to sit and then then they would hear and then they would believe. But what ended up happening was too many people got a false understanding of the gospel. They They, they thought that the gospel was just because now they were a church member. or Because they had said a prayer. See, this was kind of the first attractional church model. They got it backwards. They did whatever it took to fill the pews, to fill the seats, to fill the roll. They wanted numbers. But what happened was, A total disconnect from Orthodox Christianity. And as the standard was lowered in an effort to gain numbers, preaching became soft and watered down. And it became painfully aware that the numbers that were gained were just numbers indeed. And true Christianity was hard to find. The church was full of unconverted people who had no idea who God was had no idea of the holiness of God and the wrath to come for all who denied him. They did not know God. Brothers and sisters, my fear is that this is the case for many professing Christians today. See, in an effort to attract the world, the church has unfortunately become like the world we have bowed down to this idea that the judgment and wrath of God is nothing more than a G-rated children's novel. I think C.S. Lewis captures this idea well in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, So whatever we liked, what does it matter as long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. End quote. What our text teaches us today is, is quite the qu- contrary to that. It, it is quite opposite of this idea that, that there's this senile, benevolent grandfather who just lets things pass, who just lets things happen without repercussion. We need to be reminded the wrath to come for all who refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of what we have been saved from in order to really taste and to see that the Lord is good. This is what's in front of us today. That was true in Edward's time during the Great Awakening when he preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And brothers and sisters, it is true now. From our text today, I want us to make three observations, very simple, three headings for us today. Number one is God's judgment is devastating. Taking notes, underline that. It is devastating. Number two, we'll see that God's judgment leaves a remnant. It leaves a remnant. And number three, God's judgment is justified. He owes us nothing. We'll get to that in a moment. Number one, God's judgment is devastating. Our first observation, let's read this. Thus says the Lord. Now notice, this is the Lord God speaking, not Amos himself. He says here, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. Now what this illustration refers to is the devastation that will take place when the judgment of the Lord transpires. The effects will be extreme and catastrophic. It will be devastating. See, Amos uses a familiar analogy here that his listener would have understood well. In those times, if a shepherd had lost a sheep to a hungry lion, the shepherd would have to gather the remaining parts, would go and get his way, make his way through the destruction, the devastation, and and get mangled body parts to take to the owners of the sheep. Most shepherds tended sheep for an owner. They didn't own the sheep's sheep. That's why he says, just like two legs or a piece of an ear. So here what Amos provides, this picture of a shepherd tending a flock of sheep. The the, the flock is then ravaged by a ferocious lion who, who rips and shreds and tears, dismantles all in its path. And leaves a trail of dismembered sheep parts. This is a scene of mass destruction, of devastation. Uh, The scene of 9 11, right? We just had the 20 year anniversary. That would be a familiar illustration for us today, right? Think of the, the pictures, the pictures of chaos, the pictures of devastation. That you probably were reminded of yesterday. I mean, it was apparent that destruction was inevitable. The rubble being sorted through to try to find any remnant of life. I mean, it's a horrific image to ponder. That's the reality. This is the point of Amos's illustration. He compares the mangled remains of the sheep after a ferocious attack from a vicious lion and the mangled remains of the people of Israel that dwell in Samaria after the judgment that has just been announced in verse 11. Remember what he says, uh, verse up, right? You can look there with me. An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Your strongholds, the things that you're banking on, the things that you think are going to hold you tightly, will be plundered. And then Amos gives this illustration in verse 12 to describe the scene here. So God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is devastating. This word rescue that is used in verse 12 as the shepherd rescues comes from a root word which indicates that some intervening or substitutionary action produces a release from an undesirable condition. In other words, it's someone has to do something. Someone has to get in and has to intervene or else you will be destroyed. There there must be action on someone else's part. If a train is headed towards a cliff, the, the tracks run out, and, and I, I run up and I grab you out. I rescue. That's the same principle word that is being used here. And that's what is being said, that, that, that God has to rescue just as the shepherd rescues. And just as the shepherd rescues a remnant, because there's what? There's only pieces of the sheep that are saved, that are rescued. That is the same what He connects with the people. He says there will only be a remnant that will remain. So we must take notice here, our second observation, right? God's judgment leaves a remnant. Look, there won't be much, but there will be some. Praise be to God that's nothing because you've done anything, as Pastor Brandon mentioned earlier. It's all because of the kindness, the grace of God. Bible scholar Alan Harmon makes this observation in regard to this text. He says, the use of small parts of the animals indicates that any remnant of Israel will be small and insignificant. <laughs> it's going to be a small, insignificant number insignificant in the human mind it won't look like much but with god right but with god and this isn't just for the old testament israelites over and over and over again in scripture we are told that a small minority of all humanity will be saved from god's righteous and holy judgment those are the ones that he has chosen. That he has called out. He's rescued. He's intervened. I recently heard uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson say, referring to Romans 9.13, which says, At it, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He said, I could understand why he hated esau i can't understand why he loved jacob that should be us why me why would you save me see this is further expressed in the new testament by our lord jesus himself in the greatest sermon ever preached the sermon on the mount right Matthew 7, 13 through 14. You can turn there if you want. I'll read it for us. But Jesus says, right, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Destruction. Those who enter it are what? Just a few here and there. No, many, many will enter through the wide, easy gate. See, the majority in this life will take the wide and easy path. The majority will take the path of least resistance. The majority will follow the crowd. They'll do what everyone else is doing And Jesus says that way leads to destruction, devastation. One of the simplest ways to do self-examination on your own life. The easiest, simplest ways is to ask yourself, am I following the crowd? Do I aim to look more like culture Or do I aim to look more like Jesus? Am I getting my methods of life, my philosophy of living from social media and Netflix? Or am I getting it from the Bible and God's people? are the principles, the convictions to which I hold fast, the same as the worldly majority or the biblical minority. And if your life looks like the world, I love you enough to tell you, you can guarantee you will end up like the world. You will face destruction. Consumed by the holy and just wrath of God that is a scary place to be see Jesus goes on to say that authentic Christians faithful followers of Christ are the unpopular minority brothers and sisters we need to get that impressed on our minds Need that in our hearts. Write it down on your wall. The unpopular minority is a peculiar people. Exiles in a foreign land. Sojourners. Biblical language that says the same thing. Been called to live different. For the gate is narrow, he goes on to say in 14. The way is hard. If anybody tells you the Christian life is easy, they're lying to you. It is hard. It is tough. I don't like being confronted with my sin. I want to do what I want to do. And when I'm confronted, I have a choice to make, just as we all do. And in that opposition, I have to rely on, on the Holy Spirit to to work and to move and rely on my sound mind, that the Lord is renewing my mind, transforming my my mind. We don't let go and let God. We get active and we fight sin. We make war on it. He says it's hard. That leads to what, though? Life. And he says those who find it are few. Few few there's many and there's few it's pretty easy concept The minority will take the narrow and hard path the difficult path the path paved with persecution and self-sacrifice a life of worshiping God and not self that's our biggest problem we love us some us we love ourselves. M- Americans especially don't need more self-esteem. We need to be reminded who God is and what we deserve. He says that the path that is narrow, the path that is hard, it leads to life abundant and eternal. It leads to life. See, the cost of following Christ is a cost that purchases eternal reward. Eternal reward. Paul describes it as immeasurable in Ephesians chapter 2, 6 through 7. He says, when we are saved, this is the context that's going on here, When we are saved, he he raised us up with him. And and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, that's awesome. So that, so that in the coming ages, like the days to come for eternity, you, you can't even see it, it's ages and ages. Can't even fathom it. He might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I've heard one person say it's like we'll be trophies of grace. My grace did this. My kindness did this for all of eternity. We'll be shown, Paul says, the riches kindness of God's grace in Jesus Christ that is invaluable that is immeasurable innumerable unfathomable too large or comprehensive to measure we'll never get enough what are you going to do in heaven (laughs) this (laughs) you'll see You'll be given the understanding of how it is you were saved. And we will be active participants of Christ as he rules. Why is it so comprehensive? Why is it immeasurable? Why is it such good grace? Because guess what? We've done nothing to deserve it. You you, you do nothing. You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. It's Jonathan Edwards. We deserve wrath. Like everyone else, we deserve destruction, the devastation. But Christians get mercy. Christians get eternal life. Jesus further expounds the idea that following the narrow path leads to immeasurable riches in Matthew 19 29 and let me just set the scene for you here right so after talking to the rich young ruler the rich young man he tells him hey you have got to sell everything remember the story it says sell everything the the young man asks him like how do I obtain eternal life and Jesus says we well, got to He says, I've I've followed all the laws, I've done everything. And Jesus says, well, hey, sell all you got, give it to the poor. And uh, the young man said, nope, not going to do it, and departs, right, leaves. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'm holding too tightly to my material gains. I won't do it. The disciples, right, they're puzzled. They're they're like, well, wait a second, Jesus, like, like how can salvation happen? Like, this is crazy. And Peter speaks up as always and says, like, well, Jesus, hey, what about us, right? Because we've left everything to follow you. We've left it all. We've left it all behind. Look at me. What do we get? Here's what Jesus says to him. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my name's sake. So basically, if you've left anything for for my name to, to follow me, you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Hey, I'll take that one. I'll choose that. See, don't think of following Christ as something where you lose something. Rather, we should think as Christians, we should communicate as Christians that we don't lose anything. we gain everything. What does Paul say? I count it as dung. I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Count it all. It's rubbish. It's nothing. God has saved you. He has saved you for his good pleasure. And while it may be hard now, I I know a lot of your stories. I know what you're struggling with. I, I know how tough the road that you're navigating is right now. But brothers and sisters, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And just like a remnant was saved, then a remnant is saved. Now that remnant is called the church. And the church is called to live a lifestyle that is different than those around them. Calvin once said, The gospel will be unprofitable. Without profit does no good if it does not change our heart pervade our manners, and transform us into new creatures. The gospel doesn't leave you where you were. It doesn't leave you in your sin. It changes you. Remember, right, Israel is God's covenant people, but they have rebelled against God. They've gone their own way, they, they've decided to, to leave God's way for them to turn their back on God. Now, God says, there will be judgments. This judgment will be devastating. But Amos tells them that in his kindness, God will save some. There, there will be a remnant saved. And that's those who repent and turn to God. You might be thinking, right, well, man, that, that sounds really harsh. Like, welcome back, pastor, right? Sounds tough. Sounds harsh. Like, w- w- why can't God just save everyone? You know, isn't he mean because he doesn't save everyone? Doesn't, can't he just let everyone survive? W- why does this judgment have to be so devastating? I mean, the question it leaves us with is, is God's judgment justified? Is He justified in His judgment? And and indeed, we see that. A couple of passages I want to just go to real quick that help us to see how God's judgment is perfect and just. And then I'm going to show us why I, I think that Amos uses this illustration to show that God is justified in this devastating judgment. So first passage, just Deuteronomy 32.4, consider this, right? The rock, speaking of God, his work, what he does, is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32.4. Uh, 2 Samuel 22.31 says this, This God, the one true God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That's a lot. It says, How unsearchable are his judgments? Same word here. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? We won't understand it, but they're perfect. Brothers and sisters, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are many more passages. The the whole Bible speaks to God's perfection, His holiness, and that He is indeed perfectly just with infallible wisdom. And He executes His judgment perfectly. Listen, everyone who faces God's judgment deserves God's judgment. Look, there's not going to be any like Wrong deliveries in hell. Not going to be any mix-ups. Everyone who's there will deserve to be there. R.C. Sproul once said, God is not obligated to save anybody, to make any special act of grace, to draw anyone to himself. He could leave the whole world to perish, and such would be a righteous judgment. God doesn't owe you anything. God owes us nothing. Once again, the question is like, why does God save any of us? Now God, through the prophet Amos, he's laid out this solid indictment against Israel in chapter two. Go back and read that. I mean, the, the, the list of sin is egregious. So God is not even obligated to justify himself here. He said, you've deserved this. Here's what you've done. Here's the indictment. Guilty is the verdict. I think we've all been there. This illustration of the shepherd takes God's justification in judgment even farther. It it, it pushes it. Even farther. As I mentioned earlier in those times, if a shepherd had lost sheep to a hungry lion, the shepherd would then gather pieces of that sheep. Would have to gather remaining parts of the mangled body to show to the sheep's owner. And what this was to do was to prove that the shepherd did not steal or sell a sheep. So basically, hey, uh, sorry, but one of your sheep got eaten. Um, here's an ear, so you know that, like, I didn't sell a sheep, because no one's going to buy a sheep with a missing ear. So essentially what was happening was he was justified in what was happening. Um, Exodus twenty-two thirteen. 13 Uh, tells us a little bit about this. It was a common practice during this time. He says, if the animal is torn by beasts, if a lion rips up your sheep or any other thing, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So this was the law. This was what they were to do. Take pieces of the sheep so in other words the action of bringing the remnant would provide justification for what was lost and then the owner would then tell the shepherd that they were cleared from any wrongdoing very simple what this passage helps us to see is that God is perfectly justified Amos uses this illustration that was common that was known then situation that would have helped them to see. And it was just as God was justified in His wrath and judgment on sin then, He is justified on His wrath and judgment on sin now. God is no man's debtor. He's justified in all He does. And that's not because He is mean it's because he is God, and because he is holy, and because he will not deny himself his holiness, his worship. It's what Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation of. That is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, if we've died with Him, if we are in Christ, we will live with Him. That's the same thing that Jesus just said that we looked at earlier. Verse 12, He says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. So if we endure, we will reign. Then he says here, if we deny him, he will deny us. Then it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, you may have heard verse 13 taken out of context before. Some people use, uh, we are faithless, he remains faithful as an encouragement. Uh, That verse actually should sober us. It should be staggering. and It's not an encouragement. It's an exhortation. It's to anyone who is faithless, any non-believer, any cultural, worldly Christian who gives God lip service, but there is no heart transformation, no life change. This passage is talking about saving faith. And it says that anyone who does not have True saving faith is doomed, is doomed. And the reason why is because God won't deny himself. The moment that God contradicts himself is the moment that God stops being God. It won't happen. And see, this is why. God the Son, Jesus Christ, had to come and die for us. That's why he had to come and rescue us and save us. See, see God had to save us from God. We, we couldn't do this ourselves. The, the judgment is too much that we could ever bear. See, that is the story of Israel And that is our story. It's the story of humanity ever since the fall. God intervening. God sending a Savior. See, we need someone to live the perfect life we can't. And then die as a substitute in our place to appease the righteous wrath of holy God. See, sin must be paid for. God will not deny himself. He is justified. This is a doctrine of substitutionary atonement, right? That when Jesus Christ died, he suffered as a substitute in and on account of fallen humanity. So he dies in our place. Christ made it possible now for men and women for us to be declared righteousness based on our faith in him not in our works not in what we can do listen christ's death was not simply a charge against evil or an expression of love but it was a payment that accomplished god's holy righteous demands it, it, it carried out and it absorbed the wrath that would have been reserved for each one who was truly saved. Praise be to God. See, God's holy character requires that sin is punished fully and wholly. Fully. Fully. There's no exception. And our sin, it makes us the object of God's wrath until that penalty is paid. Like you're under condemnation. You're children of wrath are children of Christ. We're born into sin. We're freed by a savior. By laying down his own life, Jesus Christ paid the price on our behalf. He satisfies God's demand. And this payment was made to God, not Satan, as some would suggest. But it's God's character, it's God's judgment that needs to be appeased. It's God who was rich in mercy. Sent Jesus Christ to die in our place so that he's justified, that we could be justified. Jesus Christ deals with sin, not denying his holy character, while at the same time providing Christ's perfect righteousness. So he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Called imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness that allows us now to approach, to be the presence of God. Christ's death served as a substitute, a payment for the trespasses for all who believe, repent from their sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to obtaining a right relationship with God the Father. There is no other way. Jesus said it, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. There's nothing you can do to deflect the wrath of God except stand under the foot of the cross and let the blood of Christ cleanse you and make you new. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's my call to anyone who is here today, who has not repented, believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Listen, do it today. Do it now. Repent. Believe. Do not leave here. Stop professing. Christ is Lord. We don't make him Lord of our lives. He is the Lord. You either follow him now or you bow to him later. Christ is Lord. It's not lobbying for lordship. It's not politicking. Everything is Christ's. How will you respond to that? How will you respond? Will you allow Christ to absorb the wrath reserved for you, or will you face God? On that judgment on your own. It's a fearful thing to stand in the hands of an angry God. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. That's what Edwards goes on to say. He depends on himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is doing now, or what he intends to do, end quote. Don't let that be you. Don't wait. For those that call yourselves Christians, let me close with a few questions for thought. Do you play with sin, thinking God's judgment is somehow Beyond you, do you negotiate with God? You know, just one more time. I'll, I'll I'll just do it one more time, and we'll be good. Do you speak to others with urgency? You proclaim this truth: their need for a savior. Or do you carelessly squander your days scrolling social media, Netflixing, wrapped up in culture? How do you proclaim this truth to those you claim to love? If you just squander your time, if you don't feel the urgency here, then my fear for you is that you may not understand the devastation of the judgment yourself. And I would point you back to making today your day. 2nd Timothy 2:19, but God's firm foundation stands, Bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let that be a reminder, an exhortation to you. To live with urgency. To take sin serious. For those who are continually trying to do it on their own, repent and believe the gospel. That there is none but Christ who could ever take the wrath that you deserve on Himself. We pray. Father, uh, texts like these are heavy. They're serious. Lord, help us not to be a, a people who just are flippant in our worship. Who are careless in our doctrine who are fragile in our ways that even we accept correction. Because, Lord, we need correction. Help us to not give in to culture's idea that all will be well if we can all just get along. Father, we need you to help us Lord, my prayer is that if there's anyone that is burdened here by the weight of their sin, Lord, that you would help them to see the glories of Christ. That they would be able, in this moment even, to see Christ's sacrifice for them. And that if the Lord is moving in their hearts right now, that even is an act of kindness of grace. So Father, help anyone in this moment as we we sing this final song, as we take these few moments to contemplate, to reflect on who you really are, God. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see ourselves for who we are. Help us to see Christ for who He is, the all-sufficient Savior for anyone who would confess, repent, believe. It's in His name I pray. Amen.